Hi there, I'm Mark Isero, and this is Article Club, where we read and discuss one great article every month on race, education, or culture. It's September, everybody, and this month we're focusing on a great piece by Daniel Duane from the New York Times Magazine. It's called A Tale of Paradise, Parking Lots, and My Mother's Berkeley Backyard, and it's fantastic. It's about a lot of things, like the housing crisis in the Bay Area, which many of us are intimately aware of, but it's also about nostalgia and the fear of change when a community makes a decision to do the right thing. I love this piece for many reasons, not only because I grew up and live here in the Bay Area, but also because Mr. Duane writes with nuance, and his relationship particularly that he has with his mother includes a lot of compassion. It was an honor to interview him, and I'm happy to bring it to you now. Hope you enjoy it. Dan, thank you so much for doing Article Club. Thanks for having me. It's fun. Really, really loved your piece. It's just really wonderful to read, and we wanted to ask you some questions on it. And the first one is, hey, so you grew up in Berkeley. How was it? I I loved growing up in Berkeley. I feel that I was blessed to grow up there in sort of a peculiar and special historical moment in that. You know, I I was in kindergarten. The Berkeley Public Schools were in a, fully integrated for the first time in I think 1968, and I I was born in 67, so that was one year after I was born. And so I started kindergarten in Berkeley in whatever it would have been 1972 or something like that. So you know, I I got I got to grow up in a town that was you know just coming off the 1960s counterculture that was trying to change in a lot of really positive ways. A lot of my parents' generation were people who came to Cal let's say, in the late 50s and early 60s into the mid 60s. So they were they were young people who had really grown up in 1950s America, but came to UC Berkeley when the counterculture just exploded and the world cracked open and everything changed. And they had settled and had kids there. They tended to raise their kids with this message of like, you know, don't buy into all that conventional bullshit. You don't have to lead a conventional life. Follow your dream. So it was beautiful messaging. But it was it was predicated on a on an economic reality that was kind of fleeting. But the the economic reality that made that possible is obviously long gone. Yeah, I thank you so much for that for that because in just listening to you, I feel like you have some nostalgia yeah. for this place, which also came out in your piece, and I obviously do too because I grew up in the Bay Area as well. The first character that you really introduce in the piece also has a lot of nostalgia as well as some nervousness to change. And it's your mom. And I haven't met her, but she just comes off the page like as this amazing, like lively figure who has some real reservations about what's going on. And so I would love for you to sort of share, like, how did you decide to have your mom in the piece? It seems like you're talking to her while you're writing the piece. But yeah, can you say a little bit about how you approach that? Yeah, so I, I did, you know, I initially got, became interested in the subject just because I think I read in one of the local news websites like Berkeley side or something about this spat over housing at the North Berkeley BART station. And I, and I thought, oh man, you know, this sounds like a boring little story about apartments on a BART station parking lot, what could be more dreary than that? But I knew from growing up there that this is touchy stuff and this gets right to the heart of it. And I had been kind of interested in the YIMBY movement for a long time, the Yes in My Backyard pro-development movement, because I, as I wrote in the piece, I really did feel that the emergence of this progressive, I mean, I guess some progressives would say they're not progressive at all, they're neoliberal. But anyway, the, the emergence of this at least somewhat left of center group 
who saw the construction of housing as, you know, contributing potentially to the realization of the California dream. I just knew that was very strange and very new. So I'd been interested in the subject for a while. I was interested in the BART station thing. I thought that was a great way to write about it because I knew the culture of the of that neighborhood, or at least I knew what the culture of the neighborhood had been for a long time. I mean, I haven't obviously lived there for quite a while, but I see my folks a lot. And then, you know, I started writing the piece as without my mom in it. But, you know, there's there's a in writing, there's often a problem where if there's some emotional truth at the heart of a piece that you're avoiding, the the piece just gets kind of crippled by it. Like you can't you find yourself unable to write and that that that'll produce like writer's block or just bad writing or whatever. So I was kind of struggling to build the, and I was sort of going to build the whole piece around that other character, Libby Lee Egan, who was the main Yimby. But I sort of had finally, at some point when I was composing and I had to, I had to just admit to myself, oh my God, this whole thing is about my mom. Can I bear to tell my mother that when push comes to shove, I, I'm in favor of more housing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, so, so I was talking to my mom. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but Dan, where are the birds all supposed to go? Yeah, 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 exactly. Where are the birds supposed to go? I know because they love the parking lot so much. <laughs> but but how did she take on and how does she take on? You don't have to like talk about your family business, but, you know, like this is a challenge. I also challenge my mom too. like, how does she take this sort of like with with you and also with your kids, too? Right. Yeah. You mean, how did she respond to the article or how does she just wrestle with the issue? Yeah, the issue, the art, specifically the article or you sort of like interacting with the article with her, you know, when, when she says these things about like, hey, we're, are we going to become like Manhattan? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the thing that's really important for me to stay in touch with in thinking about my folks, whom I love dearly, is just they grew up in, in California at a very different time even than I did. So like I grew up in California when as I was just saying, you know, when Berkeley had relatively cheap housing and you could lead these creative middle-class lives. Well, you know, my, my, my dad was born in 39 and my mom was born in 42 and my dad grew up in Southern California. And everybody who grew up in that period in California, particularly in Southern California, where my dad was from, will tell you that Southern Cal, I mean, you want to talk about nostalgia for a paradise, the, the nostalgia for the paradise that was Southern California in the 1950s. Now, if you were a black family trapped in Watts by real estate redlining, there's no nostalgia for that bullshit. There's nothing pretty about it. But if you weren't, if you were a white family benefiting from all of that and oblivious to the suffering that it was inflicting, the nostalgia is radical because Southern California, like my dad, you know, he would drive down to go spearfishing at Laguna Beach when Orange County actually was orange orchards. Like, and there were actually lobster by the zillions under, underwater in the kelp bed or whatever, you know, on off like Laguna or Newport. So, okay. So my dad grows up there. He comes to Berkeley. He gets radical. He went off. He actually went off and worked in the civil rights movement in the South. When he came back from the civil rights movement, my mom went with him. So there was a, there was a very legitimate thing that happened here that was like people who grew up in love with the physical environment of California in the 40s and 50s, by the 1960s, were looking at nightmarish suburban and freeway sprawl devouring Southern California and coming for Northern California. And I do think it's important for all of us who are on the sort of pro-housing side to remember that the style of development that was devouring Southern California in those days, this is not the new urbanism, right? This is not, this was not intelligent density, smart cities. This was a horror show, right? This is infinite asphalt, infinite subdivisions, 
infinite low density, no public transportation. So I, I do feel at a sort of gut level, my parents' deep commitment to we cannot let the whole world be devoured by freeways and subdivisions. That's a nightmare. And and I don't know. And I, you know, my mom has been very gracious with me about this article. <laughs> I, you know, she, I don't think it felt great is the impression I got, you know, but she's been very gracious to me about it. But you know what, though, at, at first glance, the, when you introduce her yeah. in the reader, at least me as a reader, I was like, oh, I'm going to be critical of her because I think you wanted us to be. Yeah. But yeah. then similar to what you just said, there's actually a backstory. And this is where empathy comes in. And I feel like what you're trying to do is this whole nimby yimby, let's actually talk to each other. Because, yeah, like our moms are not just people who randomly just want to stay in their houses and hoard resources. They have stories like and also what it meant to be an environmentalist and a radical and go against the Vietnam War and like the People's Park and what a development. I mean, we still don't like developers now, but especially then, like yeah. developers were really, really bad. So I in the middle of your piece, I was like, oh, he's really helping me. He's helping me listen also. Do you feel like that was on purpose? Because you really did explain, especially not just for the folks nationwide in the magazine, but even for folks in the Bay Area of a different generation. Yeah, you know, I, I, I mean, your, your, your read that it sounded like I was talking to my mom, that's very astute. And I think in a way what I was doing was saying, look, mom, I really, really get where this all comes from in you. And I accept it. And I, I love where you've come from. And, you know, I honor and respect you know, the way you've lived your life. And I, and I, and I hope you can honor and respect the way I think our world has changed, you know? Uh, and I, you know, and there were, I could have gone further in that piece. Like in a way it was like, I wanted to, I, I know that within our contemporary YIMBY politics, there's a very strong antipathy toward these older NIMBY liberals. So these older NIMBY liberals who sort of aging hippies who are like, see themselves as far left, but are this, this absolute roadblock to development. And I kind of wanted to point out like, okay, there's, that's fair in some ways, but please remember that people like, like my dad with a, a, a another law, with a law, with a friend to another lawyer brought the lawsuit that desegregated the Oakland police department. The Oakland police department did not hire black people until my father and a black attorney he was working with sued them and forced them to like, you know, we can, it's all very nice to talk about yes in my backyard when in fact, most of the Yimbies in my story, those apartment buildings are not going to be in their backyard. They're going to be in somebody else's backyard. I'm still on their side, the Yimby side. I'm not saying I'm not on their side, but it's all very nice to be brave about yes in my backyard when it isn't actually your backyard. And my mother actually brought an entire family of Vietnamese war refugees into our actual backyard and put them up in an outbuilding that we had and and made a life for them in America. Like, so it, it just is, I guess I feel like in our politics these these days, it's too easy, you know, our sort of Twitter sphere politics, it's it's all about these kind of gotcha games of, you know, of I know I'm on the side of the good and anybody who's like one toe across the boundary of righteousness, I can, you know, I can dunk on them and knock them down. And I kind of just wanted to say, you know, this is not real. People like my parents built the progressivism that you love in this place, you know? Yeah. And it's not just online where it's performative. You have a, a very funny scene in your piece about the clown show that, ha I mean, I know about that. That happens in Berkeley. People coming out from everywhere. It's very funny. That was great. But like on this piece, 
you as you were building the empathy, you know, of this generation that basically did the work in that time, yeah. you bring up all the issues about like, hey, what does it really mean to have empathy? What does it mean to have nostalgia or like a sense of a fear of change? Yeah. And one of the parts that I thought just was really wonderful, I'll just write it, read it. You write that it was hard not to wonder if we all reach a point in our lives at which personal convenience and a fear of change become imperceptibly commingled with our sense of the common good. Yeah. And I just felt like you were speaking to all generations about the idea about like, what does it mean to live and also to be nervous about what's going to be coming up for you? Yeah. And, you know, I, at one point, I don't, I didn't really end in this place, but I sort of, at one point when I was asking myself, well, what is this story really about for me? I had sort of a moment of thinking about it as like, it's about the fact that the world belongs to the young and it hurts when you find out that you're no longer one of them. And that moment comes for everyone, you know, but, and I think there was sort of, maybe I was talking to myself in that moment of sort of saying, oh God, you know, that that moment's coming for me too, when you feel the world sweeping away from you. Just the idea that, yeah, it is coming for all of us. And you just said that it was coming for all of us as we age because the world is for the young, but I was going to interrupt you and say, but maybe not for our kids. Yeah, that's so, right. And, and, and that's the piece where I feel like you do all this work to, to have your mom become more understandable. But toward the end, as you go back with your own nostalgia, you're, I feel like you still have some feelings like, yeah. well, my, ki my kids can't make it here. Right. And, and so, I mean, I have a few different thoughts on that, but one of them is that I do, I mean, I do think that one piece of th this kind of stuff happens everywhere. There's New York versions of this and other cities have their versions of this, but if you think about the the fact that I do think we live by living in California, we are living in one of the world's truly strange sort of geopolitical demographic phenomena. If you think about the fact that 150 years ago, I mean, at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, right, the California, this gigantic land with an obscenity of natural resources, gorgeous weather, paradise for humans, absolutely huge had a grand total of 150,000 people living in it. Just not to get into the genocides and all that, but that's a tiny number of people for the size and wealth of this place. When you think about that, a country like Japan, which is, I don't know, it's not maybe comparable in size. Well, maybe instead of making a comparison to Japan, I'll just put it this way. California has room for probably 120 million, if we're honest with ourselves. And so all of us who live in California and have, everyone who has lived here for 150 years since the gold rush has had this uniquely bizarre experience of living in a place that between the time you were a kid and the time you were in middle age is radically transformed and twice as crowded and twice as expensive. That just keeps happening to every single generation in this place over and over and over again. And so I do think it's okay to have compassion for that, for the pain of that for each successive generation, like my folks getting older and thinking, geez, where is this place going? While at the same time, having compassion for the kids, for my kids, for you know your kids, for our grandkids and saying for everyone else's kids who would like, you know, who are, I don't know, I, I guess I'm trying to say that I think it's, there's value in trying to hold all of this together in our minds at once, you know, that, that there's no great solution to this predicament for either side. Yeah, and I think that, I think that that is where I was left with too. And I appreciate all of your thoughts. And just as a last question, at Article Club, we do also debate, like, is this really just a talk or is this an act? Like, do we do something about the things that we're reading about? 
And and of course there's the YIMBY and NIMBY and there's housing and folks should probably go to their housing boards or whatever and promote. But I feel this piece was a little bit more personal for you that you're not necessarily searching for advocacy here. But I guess, yeah, I guess that's sort of like my last question. Like, what are you hoping at the end in that last scene that you want us to be left with? Is this a more personal piece for you? Do you have like ideas for how we should think about the issue of housing in the Bay Area? I mean, I guess I guess the way to put those two issues, those two factors together is to say, yes, it is personally and emotionally painful for me. And and yes, because I because I, too, have a nostalgic attachment to the way Berkeley once looked. And, you know, I, too, wish that. But I'm more emotionally attached to the economic environment that I grew up than I am to the physical environment. That doesn't mean I won't be I wouldn't be heartbroken to see my old neighborhood replaced with apartment buildings. But if the translation was then that my kids can actually have creative middle-class lives, I'll take it. But I guess the, the, you know, the way I would sort of try to hold those two ideas together is to say that I guess I would encourage, you know, all of us to try to separate in our hearts, our sense of, of our own attach, our sort of our, our own emotional attachments and our own sort of narrow understanding of our personal self-interest from our capacity to judge what you know what will what 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 actions of ours what activism of ours what votes of ours are likely to bring out a better a better world for everyone else's grandchildren maybe that's the way to say it you know and that doesn't that's maybe not going to feel good making that choice in the end because they're probably not ex- if you're a homeowner in California right now those two ends do not talk to each other if you're a homeowner in California right now, the best thing for you is for your bottom line, for your pocketbook, is to oppose the construction of absolutely all housing everywhere always. There's no that's a that's there's no escaping that. But that is producing a nightmare society. So, you know, we got we have to be willing to try to take a hit in this in the interest of the common good, I think. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much for doing Article Club. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. Okay, man. Take care. I want to thank Daniel Duane one more time for your piece and also for coming onto Article Club to share all of your thoughts about your article. I am truly, truly grateful. Also, I want to appreciate you all for listening to this and also for reading the piece. And if you're interested, I would like to invite you to our discussion on September 24th at 2 p.m. Pacific time. All you need to do is go to highlighter.cc slash discussion, or you can also email me at mark at articleclub.org. I hope you have a great week. Thank you so much.